morning. Thanks. Um, I'm going to ask a show of hands question in just a second. Okay, so this is, this is your warning, right? I'm going to ask if you err toward fight or flight. What I mean by that is, you know, when you are in distress, when you are in crisis, um, either because of your temperament, your story, your experiences, uh, your sin, that totally counts. Like, for whatever reason, when you are under duress, when you are stressed out and feeling overwhelmed, is your tendency to, to fight and to strive, to attack, to achieve, to take the hill, or is it to take a nap? Is it to avoid, to run away, to flee? Okay, so I want everybody to raise a hand for one of them, okay? This is not a trap. I mean, it's a trap, but it's for your good, too, okay? It's, of course it's a trap. How many of you err on the, on the side toward fight? Okay, okay, okay. Okay, now next show of hands. How many toward flight, toward fleeing? Hmm, okay. Uh, I was kind of curious what the percentage would be, the makeup. And if I didn't notice that you didn't raise your hand, you lucked out this time. I'll catch you next time. Um, I err towards flight as well. I'm going to talk about that a, a little bit later. And you may be wondering, like, oh, why are you asking me about this? Because I don't see anything about, like, fight or flight in this, this psalm. This is, this is a little bit weird. And you'd be right in one sense. In Psalm 108, Psalm 108 is very strange, okay? I actually have never encountered a psalm that does this before, but this psalm actually has zero original material in it. What I mean by that is it's actually the com combination of two excerpts from two other psalms. Specifically, they're like copy-pasted sections from Psalm 57 and Psalm 60, but unlike the way that Psalm 108 reads, those psalms are lament. They're psalms of lament. They're psalms where, where David is articulating that he is in some kind of extreme crisis or, or distress. And the psalmist, whoever it was that organized the psalms into five books, took and lifted out of it the, the portions of those psalms of lament that, that move into and respond in praise and thanksgiving and in celebration. That's interesting, isn't it? And it, it kind of begs the question, like, why, why did they, why did whoever the, it was, the, this, this psalmist who was taking portions from, from psalms written by David, why did that happen? Well, another way of asking that question would be to, to ask, what is the message there? What is the meaning of that? And Psalm 108 in drawing from two existing psalms already to create a new psalm, are leveraging the original meaning of those psalms, but also birthing something new. A psalm that is all about courage, because with God, we have nothing left to lose. So that's what we're going to talk about. And that's why I asked about fight or flight. So we're going to jump into the first one, fight. See, verses 1 through 5, which come from literally, like if you, if you happen to have, a, you know, this, the um, Psalm Journal uh, ESV or you have your own Bible, um, if you go back to Psalm 57 and flip back, you'll see that verses 1 through 5 of this Psalm are verses 7 through 11 in Psalm 57. And what's happening here is it's articulating and helping us see and, and, and this expression of the, the courage to forgive the courage to forgive instead of fight. Now, 
if you're reading this, you're like, where is forgiveness? Forgiveness isn't mentioned there. What is this talking about? Has Brad lost his mind? All are valid questions. <laughs> Psalm 57, if you read it, the, the heading of it says, um, it's a psalm by David when he was in the cave. Well, what, what, what cave? Like, was he just camping and there happened to be a cave there? No. What happened there, and this Psalm 57 is all about the hel- his helplessness before his enemies, but what happened there is this, this takes place after Goliath, after David, as the shepherd, is drawn into the battle against Goliath, slays Goliath, um, he becomes famous, and so King Saul, who uh, God's prophet Samuel has, has, has told that David is going to replace him, that David is the chosen next king. Uh, Saul, in a classic uh, keep your friends close and your enemies closer, invites David into his royal court. He becomes best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. But David, instead of being inhibited from, from rising in stature and fame and, and having people follow him, it actually just increases. And so Saul gets jealous. He plots David's death, and David flees and runs away. And Saul chases him down. As he's chasing him, at one point, David is trying to hide, like they they caught him unaware, and he runs into a cave, and he hides in the cave, and Saul just happens to choose that cave to walk into to relieve himself, which is awesome. Like, you can't make that up. Like, if you're like, I'm going to write a really compelling story about this hero David, you're not going to write like his his arch rival, it just needed to go take a leak in a cave, right? Okay. Either it it had to have happened, okay? So while David's in there, he realizes this, and he actively chooses not to take out Saul. He doesn't attack him. He instead sneaks up without him realizing he's there, cuts the, the corner off of his royal robe, and lets Saul leave. But on his way out, as he's like, after Saul's left the cave, he calls, David comes out of the cave, he exposes himself, he, he's, he, he reveals his, his presence, yells at Saul and says, you should know, I didn't take advantage of this situation, and so you know that I could have, here's the corner of your robe. Check and see if it's missing, right? And Saul, like, so he's trying to persuade him, I'm not out to take you out. I am not going to harm or lay a hand on the Lord's anointed, right? So what's going on here, like, what's amazing about this is David actually had the right he was supposed to succeed and take Saul's place. That was what Samuel prophesied. He was cho- he's God's chosen one. And he said, but not by my hand will it happen. By God's hand, it will happen. He actually persuades Saul to, to go back home. He takes his army, goes back to Jerusalem, and he goes and, and he leaves. Now, the point of this, the point of Psalm 57 Jonathan, he, t- he tells Jonathan in 1 Samuel 20 that he is one step away of death from death, and that's why he has to flee. Despite being one step away from death, Saul, or so, excuse me, David chose to trust. He chose to forgive when it was particularly difficult. He chose to be steadfast. In Psalm 108, verses 1 and 4, So also from Psalm 57, right? It says, My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. 
Verse 4, for your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. The, the, the repetition of this word steadfast, it, in English, it looks like it's repeating, but it's actually not quite the same word. Because God's steadfast love is the Hebrew word chesed, and it almost is like a proper noun, right? Like Lafayette, Colorado is a proper noun, or Brad is a proper noun. God's steadfast love, it's its own unique thing. There is a steadfastness that no steadfastness can possibly meet and be and use this word for anything else. So this word that it says in, in verse 1, my heart is steadfast, it's what it's trying to say, because it's related to that word, what what David's trying to say is, I can be steadfast. I can, I can have courage because God is steadfast and way more steadfast than I will ever be. He is choosing steadfastness for his heart on the hope of God's steadfastness instead of giving into fear. It's courage. That's what this is talking about. He refused to fight. He refused to take matters into his own hands, even though he had the right. And what's amazing about this is, instead, in cutting off the corner of this royal robe, what he's doing is he is doing a, he's demonstrating a foregoing of justice. He is demonstrating, it's like, not only should David have been king in that moment, but also Saul should not have been trying to kill him because David was not trying to usurp him. He was foregoing his right to justice and recompense. But he's doing something else. See, he could have cut off the, the robe. He could have, like, you know, put it in an envelope, put a stamp on the envelope, and sent that to Saul afterwards so that he would know. Or maybe Saul would just notice it at some point on his own. But instead, he did the vulnerable thing. He walked out of the cave knowing full well that if Saul ran and sounded the alarm, David was dead. He did that to communicate to Saul, I love you like a father. I would never do this thing that you think I'm trying to do. Forgoing justice and loving vulnerable, vulnerably, we actually have a word for that already. Forgiveness. That's what that story is about. So who have you raised your hand and said you, you, you're tempted to fight? You're tempted to, to, you know, hit Saul over the head with a rock in the cave, right? Hear this, please. Do not confuse antagonism with faithfulness. See, we're living in a moment right now. I'm just going to be real blunt on this. Um, it is really cool to be anti-institutional right now, Right? What I mean by that is it, is it is all the rage to complain about the elite, the establishment, the gatekeepers. Like if you use that language and put that word, you know, that's your cause, then you can fight whoever you want and however you want. We even, you know, in, you know if, if you're Christian, often you, you sanctify it by doing it in Jesus' name too, which I would caution you strongly against that. Right? We say things like, like you know, Jesus, when, when, when he saw the grifters at the temple who were, who were um, you know, the money changers, and they set their tables, and they were charging high rates and, and gouging the poor Jews who were coming to worship at the temple and didn't bring their, their dove as a sacrifice, they were charging three times that rate. 
And Jesus went in there, he, he made a whip, and he just, you know, he, he drove the money changers out of the temple, and he overturned the tables. By the way, all that's true. <laughs> when we're telling that story, though, as if we have the same holiness that Jesus did, and the same purity of intent, and the same right, because that was actually Jesus' temple, not our temple. Besides just being exegetically problematic, it's, it exposes that most often when we want to fight, we're not fighting for Jesus. We're fighting out of fear and or self-righteousness. That's not faithfulness. Let me put it another way. This is universal. We would always rather fight for Jesus than trust him to fight for us. I just don't know anyone who'd be like, no, nah, it's much easier for me to just chill when I'm being attacked personally or, you know, things are hard. Like, that, no, that's not a thing. <laughs> what Psalm 108 is communicating by lifting the celebration section from this psalm of lament that takes that the context of which is in this cave, what it's saying is that the latter, trusting God to fight for us, is better. It's more joyful. It leads to worship, celebration, praise, and thanksgiving. It's a lot more fun than fighting for Jesus. Trusting God to fight for us frees us to instead fight sin that makes us run to fisticuffs every, at every opportunity. Trusting God to fight for us frees us instead to, here's a crazy idea, repent before we're confronted. When we realize we've sinned against somebody, to, to actually own it before they point it out to us. It frees us to forgive not once, not seven times, as Peter mentions, not even 77 times, but every time. It frees us to love our enemy, not just as a bumper sticker, but to actually pray for those who persecute us. Fighting is not justified because the justified fight to forgive. Miroslav Volf, who knew something about this, uh, knows something. He's still alive. I said that as if he's passed. He's, he's alive. He's got a great podcast. I highly recommend it, actually. Uh, he's also a theologian. Uh, he grew up in, um, in Bosnia, and um, his dad was martyred as a pastor trying to serve a community during the one of the most terrible genocides of the 20th century. He says this in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude my enemy from the community of humans and myself from the community of sinners. So if you raise your hand for fight, here's your homework. And yes, this is homework. No, I'm not going to check it. Jesus will know. I want you to ask yourself and actually spend some time thinking about who do you fight instead of fighting to forgive? Who would that be? It could be a person. It could be like an individual. It could be a group of people. It could be somebody who believes certain things or votes a certain way. It could be, and honestly, that's just a cop-out. I'm going to eradicate the the political uh, um, loophole here, okay? I want you to think about somebody specifically, and I want you to go to them and I want you to repent. 
they may not know you want to fight them. They may not realize or have any clue that you throw down, you want to throw down. Repent, because what is happening in your heart is real. And I want you to ask for their forgiveness specifically. And I want you to forgive them for whatever it is that makes you want to fight. I, you don't have to say that part to them. I want you to say the, the repent part out loud. But keep forgiving them because that's not a one-time thing. Okay. The courage to forgive instead of fight. Also, the courage to dare instead of flee. Verses 6 through 13 are lifted from Psalm 60, verses 5 through 12, which is about David being humbled by God, right? If he was helpless before his enemies in Psalm 57, now he's humbled by God because now when this psalm is written and what it's about is when, when David is king, it's after all that's happened, God has delivered him from all of that. He is now king and he's been a good king, right? He's, he's actually rallied and united Israel and he's being a faithful and good king at this point. But the problem is, is, in his success in Israel's unity and flourishing, all the enemies around Israel realized this and they decided they needed to unite themselves and ally with each other in order to threaten Israel. He did everything right and it still wasn't good enough. That was his reward. No good, right, no good deed uh, goes unpunished, right, is, is the saying. And so as David is marching north to defend Israel from one army... Israel is ambushed in the south by another army because it's a coordinated feint and attack. And David is like, what, what else am I supposed to do? God, where are you? That's the lament. He thought he did everything right. He's trying to figure out how to be faithful, but it's never enough because he's finite. He's just a human king. He's not God but in lifting this psalm, the section of Psalm 60, and putting it into Psalm 108, for a people who are being rescued and are returning to Israel because God has delivered them, what this is communicating is that despite the odds, God's people can, courage, can have courage to dare because God leaves nothing to chance, because he delivers his people, because of his steadfast love and faithfulness, his, his has said. In fact, his hesed is so steadfast that we see in David in verse 6 that he's daring vertically. He's being daring with God. In verse 6 it says, That your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. All right, you don't have to raise your hand for this one. How many of you regularly pray to God and say, God, would you answer me? It sounds brash, really not humble right? But he's able to say that because he is banking on not his merit, not his worth, not his righteousness, but who he is to God. Did you catch it in verse 6? That your beloved ones may be delivered. That's who he is. That's who Israel, that's who God's people are and is. And that is, means that he can appeal to God's said with courage to dare because he's beloved. He doesn't risk anything. This is even more, so, this is even more the case. The, the, the daring and the courage is even more the case and more prevalent in the rest of this passage because uh, 
horizontally speaking, with, with man, with the nation's neighbor and creation, whatever it is, everything under God, he can be daring with. Because like, for example, seven, verse seven, the first part, when it says God has promised in his holiness, that could also be translated God because God has promised in his sanctuary. Holiness and sanctuary here are the same word. God's holiness, his goodness, his consistency, his steadfastness, that is David's safety. And guess what? He said, God, answer me, and God did. That's why you start seeing the quotes here in verse 7, the second half of the verse. With exultation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my, sep- sep- my scepter. Right? The first few nations, those, are, those, those regions and areas, those are not um, uh, God's people's places yet. And he says, these are mine. These are, God, this is, these are my people. And then it goes in, Moab is my wash basin. I wash my hands in Moab. But man, that's, that's brutal. Man, like, that's a burn. Upon Edom, I cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. I mean, this is saying that their threats are as nothing This is God promising David that in Psalm 60. And we know that it happened because God's people are returning from exile back into those very same regions again. It's God's promise, not just one time being faithful to it, but forever. Verse 10, when it says, who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Like in verse, when that was written in Psalm 60, that was a real question. It's rhetorical now. God is the answer to that question, and he has answered that question by returning God's people to the promised land. See, what's amazing in all of this, like the celebration, joy, worship, praise, thanksgiving, those are all really kind of expected responses to that safety, to that sanctuary, to that answer, to that protection, to that promise, right? But then David ups the ante in verse 13, with God... We shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. We shall do valiantly. Now, you might think to yourself, especially if you're in the first group of people who raise your hand and said that you tend toward fight, you're like, oh, there it is. There's the fight. We can do, we can do violently. Or er, vi- violently. <laughs> valiantly. I promise I'm actually more of a fleeing person than a fighting person. My slip would not be evidence of that, though. Um, it's not the word for fight. There's actually a Hebrew word for fight. It's lamech. This word is gibor, which is really just fun to say. Um, lamech is when, whenever it's talking about fighters or fighting or to fight or to fight a war, to a battle. Gibor, it, that root word means to prevail. When God, uh, when, when it, in 1 Samuel, if you're familiar with uh, David and his mighty men, his, his kind of personal guard, these elite fighters, they're not called elite fighters. They're called mighty men. And the word mighty is this word. It means strong. It means to act with strength. It means to act with courage. And that might include fighting, but it might include not fighting. What it, what it, always, what it does include is daring greatly. When David... When, 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 when asked, what would cheer David up? His mighty men asked him, what would cheer you up? He said, you know what would cheer me up? Is if I could sip a drink from the well in the middle of the enemy army. 
because he's like, that means it wouldn't be such a problem. It wouldn't be a threat. It wouldn't be a danger. And um, David's mighty men said, challenge accepted. And they snuck in, and they got the water, and they said, here, drink. And he was stunned by their love. Gibor is, is the word that is a courageous love that dares, that risks, that is vulnerable, that is exposed. So how many of you raise your hands at flee or flight, right? Okay. To you, to us, I say do not confuse avoidance with holiness. Do not confuse ho- avoidance with holiness. Especially if the reason that you, like, you, you prefer to flee is because you're like, those idiots over there, they're fighting. I don't want to do that. I know what the, the right answer is, and it's, it's to not fight. Well, I mean, it's like kind of partially right, but still totally wrong. Avoidance is not holy. Let me, let me put it this way. Um, you guys are familiar with FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. Fear of missing out is dead, so you know. It doesn't happen anymore. It, the new, like, FOMO is dead, long live FOBO. Fear of better options. The problem isn't that we, that, that we, we you know, make commitments too quickly because we don't want to miss out, and then we break them. Now it's we just don't ever commit. And commitment is risky. Commitment is the opposite of avoidance. It might cost you something. It might cost you some comfort. Um, it might cost you money. It might cost you time. It might cost you all kinds of things that make you more vulnerable and exposed because then you don't have those things anymore because you gave them up when you committed to it. Guess what? I dare you. I dare you to commit. I double dog dare you to commit. This is also counterintuitive. Like, as I'm saying this, I also know that some of you are really busy. Being busy is not doing valiantly. It's doing a lot. That's not the same thing. In fact, being too busy to do valiantly is avoidance just spun as I didn't have a choice in the first place, which is avoidance. It's avoidance. Let me, let me, I, I said that this is where I err. Let, um, let me own it, okay? Uh, if you speak Enneagram, uh, I am a three. What, what that means, if you don't speak Enneagram, which, by the way, you, you are not missing anything. I will explain all of this. It's very simple. It means that I like to win. <laughs> it means, like, I'm competitive. Uh, I like to achieve. I, on the surface, seem very much like I would err toward fighting in a lot of ways. But, but every Enneagram number out of the nine, they all each has their own unique vice. Or, in other words, the, the unique thing that they, the direction or trajectory that they are tempted toward in their sin and weakness and finiteness. Okay, and the three, um, our vice—I almost said their vice. I'm owning it though. Our vice is vanity, and what I mean by vanity is um, we 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 really care about how we're perceived, and off way too much, honestly, to the degree that—and this is the part that never fit seemed to fit for me when I ever have read a, an enneagram description of the three—is it is more important to be seen as successful than it is to be successful. And something about that has always like rubbed me the wrong way because I, like let's, like, let's just say, let me put it this way, even if I did want to, to try and be seen as successful if I wasn't, I could never that pull that off. I have a terrible poker face. And besides that, I'm way too humble. 
I too just almost threw up in my mouth, okay? I learned that um, I am a subtype of a three where my vanity isn't like the other kinds of three vanities. My vanity is extra special. (laughs) My vanity is in wanting to never be seen as vain. My vanity is in always wanting to be seen as humble. See, that sounds at least better than wanting to be seen as successful if you're not. But it's actually pretty bad, if I'm honest, right? Let me, here's how this works out. Um, Justin Chapel, who we have sent uh, with people to plant a church in, in Longmont, when he was doing his residency here at one point, he had preached a sermon, and we have, you know, as a resident, we were doing feedback, and, and I was giving him feedback, and um, I was trying to speak, you know, give him some, you know, critical feedback with truth and love, and we started, I'd start, we started getting frustrated with each other, and he started getting really annoyed with me, and and. I kept trying to say, say it well and say it right and say the right thing. And, and at some point, he was just like, would, dude, would you, just, would you just freaking say what it is you're trying to say? I'm like, okay, fine. Your sermon sucked. <laughs> His response was, oh, thank you. I immediately have an existential crisis. Because I am extremely confused. I didn't say your whole sermon. I was, I was trying to give some critical feedback about one thing, and I know it's a thing that he also finds really important, and, and I just wouldn't say it because it required me to say, I think you're wrong about something, and that would make me less humble. That's vanity. Vanity prevents you from loving people well because it's actually selfish love. Okay, I'm going to give you one more example here, because why not? It was a couple, a year or two into our marriage when uh, Hannah realized I had never been thrown a surprise birthday party. She rectified it, just for the record, so we can keep paying attention to this part, because yes, it, it, we check out. Um, it was awesome. But what sent me into another existential crisis was her asking me if I wanted to be thrown a surprise birthday party. The answer was, duh, yes, that would be awesome. Who doesn't want to? Like, I love Zephaniah 3, and we had as our benediction last week where it said, the, the Lord your God rejoices over you. The Lord your God dances over you with loud singing. God doesn't give you something you don't need, and you're not made for it, to be rejoiced over, to be celebrated. Of course so, but I didn't feel like that was okay to want it, to be celebrated. And I had another existential crisis because that feels not humble. To say you want something, to say you need something, to say something's important to you is counterintuitively, yes, is the same thing. And also to, 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 to say something important to other people and to n- care more about that person than how, what they will think of you when you say it, especially, in, especially when, not if, you say it wrong. Psalm 108, in lifting this, putting it here, and having these rhetorical questions to who can deliver us, who will lead us, means we need that leadership. It means we need a God who will deliver us. And that includes not avoiding hard things, 
are also good things that we're made for. Psalm 108, the reason why everything that we're talking about so far this morning is coming, can come from two psalms of lament and be put into a psalm that is, is, is overwhelmingly celebratory and thanksgiving and through and through. The reason that that is possible is because we can worship and celebrate in distress. It's not because we are able to bootstrap our way toward it. We can just like muster it up ourselves. It's not because our circumstances are just fine, thank you. It's not because everything's going well. It's because God is faithful, that he will set a table in the presence of our enemies. And whatever circumstances are going on, it's actually an invitation to say that we can worship and celebrate in distress. And yes, it's vulnerable. And yes, it's risky. And yes, it's daring. But not if God is steadfast. So here's your homework, those of you who raised your hand for flight. What don't you dare to do? Not, not just like as a, like, because it's something daring to do, right? Like, I'm not going to go try and, you know, jump 50 cars on a motorcycle, okay? That's dumb. I'm talking about something that is a good thing, either for love of neighbor or to receive God's love more fully, whatever that is, what don't you dare to do valiantly or otherwise? And then, I just want you to tell somebody about it. You don't even have to do it. <laughs> but then I want you to ask the other person to hold you accountable to it and to help you figure it out. Because that's how the body of Christ depends on each other. That's how family works. Because I guarantee you, probably half of you have something specific in mind that you've been thinking about this whole time, and you're like, oh, that's okay for me to want? And now that I'm saying you need to share it with somebody, you're like, I'm good. And I get it. Okay? This is the last thing I'll say before we jump into the Q&A, but my last point is just the courage to love. I served for... 11 years in the Army National Guard as a, first as, a, um, as an MP, but for almost 10 of those years as a, as a chaplain. And I vividly remember getting to the U.S. Army Chaplain Center and School in Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and sitting down in one of the first classes we did, and the sergeant major of the, of, of the center and school stood in front of us, and this is where he started. This is like, welcome. He said, I want you to know and I will say this again when you leave, that your job is to prepare men and women for death. Your job is to prepare men and women for death. Now, he acknowledged and said, now I think everybody in this room understands that that is absolutely, and especially your job as a chaplain, but I am not saying that that is initially, primarily, or ultimately your job as a chaplain. He says, I'm speaking as a Christian to a room full of mostly Christians, that that is your job as a Christian. It's not a chaplain thing or a military thing, it's a Christian thing. There's an amazing book I highly recommend, any, everybody read it. Um, it's called The Rise of Christianity. It's written by a sociologist named Rodney Stark. When he started writing this book, he was not a Christian and became one somewhere along the way. Reason being, and what he started out to do in, in, in this book was to try to understand how a backwoods, like, 
middle of nowhere sect of Judaism in this podunk town of, region of Galilee could in just a few centuries, just a few generations, end up converting the entire Roman Empire and start like Christendom as we know it is because of that few century period. And he wanted, to, he wanted to figure out, like, what is the reason for this? Because, like, he didn't accept any supernatural causes. And this is what he found. He said one of the most important and significant things was how Christians responded and lived during plagues. Okay? Specifically two of them. One is the Antonine Plague, which took place between 165 and 180 AD. And in this period of time, this is only 100 years after Jesus was, was killed and resurrected, Okay? hundred years later, they realized that uh, when a plague would come into an area, everyone would flee the city except the Christians. Like if you were healthy, you could, you, you could leave, but the Christians would stay in order to care for those who were sick and dying, knowing that they would become sick and maybe die themselves. In those cities where there were enough, where, where those Christians did that, where that happened, after the plague ended and people returned, they doubled in number. They actually, in terms of the, as a percentage of a community that died from the plague, the most resilient community that, to survive the plague were Christians. We know this from census data, okay? The reason is twofold. One, they stayed, and in their desperation, they created a support network. They planted churches. They had whatever you would call the, the equivalent of a community group, and they depended on each other like they were family because they were. And then when people came back, they were stunned because there was, it's stupid to do that. It's dumb. Why would you stay? You could, be, you could have died. They said, because of Jesus, because he loves us, because he died for us. And everybody who came, many people who came back said, I want to know who that is. Because I don't care. Regardless of the supernatural, that love is not possible apart from the love of a God around here somewhere. The second plague, the Cyprian plague, which <laughs> was named after a bishop, which, like, man, of all the things to have named after you, a plague is not one of them. It's named after a bishop named Cyprian because in the third century, um, he was preaching sermons every single week, every single day, exhorting Christians to stay and to care for loved ones in the middle of a plague and to care for their neighbor, to love their neighbor as themselves. He was so effective and represented something that was already happening across the entire Roman Empire at this point that the emperor at the time named Julian, who uh, was referred to as Julian the Apostate by Christians because he was so radically anti-Christian and persecuted them, they didn't fight, by the way, and they didn't run. He says this. We have recorded this. It's recorded. The impious Galileans, in other words, the Christian sect I was referring to earlier, the impious Galileans support our poor in addition to their own. He's shocked. It is shameful that our poor should be wanting our aid. What he's saying there is, this is really bad, guys. They're doing such a good job of caring for the poor, people are going to start expecting us to do it. No, no. In Ephesus, the city, uh, there, there's accounts of this during this plague, the, the uh, Cyprian plague. During this plague, there were, when a city would be hit, they would start shutting down sections of the city 
and quarantining it off so people couldn't get in and people couldn't get out. And they would let the plague run its course until everybody's, everybody's dead or alive and clearly not sick anymore. And they have, they have city officials asking what to do because Christians are climbing over the walls to get into the quarantined area, knowing they won't come out. The courage to love like that, never mind whatever it is we've been thinking about this morning, the courage to love like that requires the love of Jesus. And if you truly understand the love of Jesus, then it, you will, it will result with both a relinquishment of control over everything, including life and death itself, and it will result with a freedom to risk everything because you actually risk nothing. You have nothing to lose. This is what Jesus was referring to when he said in Luke chapter 9, verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Whew. I remember in, uh, in one of my seminary classes, I've, I've shared this once before, one of my seminary classes talking about this passage in Luke, uh, a, another student raised his hand and was like, okay, how do we help our people understand like, how to apply this verse you know, in, in all the pressure to balance work and family and rest and, and everything else. And uh, Dan Doriani is my, the, that professor's name. I love him. He, um, he took his glasses off and he said, thank you, friends, asking that very important question. And we're going to suspend the rest of class because we're going to talk about that right now. And what I will tell you is this, is that if I ever hear a sermon audio or hear of through word of mouth you preaching a sermon where you apply and say that an implication of anything in scripture whatsoever is balance, I will personally drive to your church, grab your ear, and lecture you until you repent. And he said, I will do this in love. He said, because balance is Buddhist. It's not Christian. Balance is an application and a response to a world where the cross does not exist. Balance is something that you do to cope when hope is not an option. Balance is something you do to manage that which Jesus solved and accomplished once and for all on the cross and rose to new life to bring you with him. There is nothing to balance when Jesus says to pick up your cross and follow him. There is nothing to balance when he says that, you know, if you, if you love well enough, if you die for my sake, then you'll, you'll live. No, no, no. Jesus doesn't want your schedule. He doesn't want your priorities. He wants you. Balance requires, is the application of a world that you have to navigate if you have something to lose. On the cross, Jesus had the last word on that, on that question. He said, it is finished. If it's finished, then you don't have anything to lose. And so for all of us, I just want you to ask yourself this question, and then I'm going to take some questions. But I want you to ask, how would you live differently if you actually believed you had nothing to lose? How would you live differently if you actually believed you had nothing to lose? 
that you had a God who would lead you to the fortified city, who would lead you to Edom, who is making his wash basin whatever annoying boss you have to work with, who is casting his shoe at whatever political party is particularly loud and obnoxious right now, right? He is shouting triumph over all of our stress, over all of our problems. It is finished, he declares. Stop balancing, start living. Okay, let's see what questions we got. Okay, in our cultural moment, I think we are hyper aware of institutional abuse, especially within the church. It seems like a radical courage to forgive might lead to more vulnerability to said abuses. Is that a real risk? What about in our relationships? Okay, let me say, let's say two or three things. Okay, one, I endured, Hannah and I both endured spiritual abuse for two years and suffered a lot during that time. So I do not take this lightly. I love St. Augustine when he says, uh, and, and this is what he actually said, so I'm quoting him, I'm not using this language. He says, he said, the church is a whore, but she is my mother. What he's articulating there is the glorious ruin that is the people of God. C.S. Lewis also said um, that if you lock your heart up tight, protecting it so that it can never be hurt again, then it will become brittle and fragile and crumble with the slightest stress. Okay? I'm saying that because, one, we should not be surprised that getting a lot of sinners in a room is going to hurt. Two, Jesus died for those sinners in that church and calls it his bride, which is crazy, so that means we can't stop loving the church. And it's never okay when abuse happens. Everything we do and how we live in a church should prevent it, and if it doesn't, we repent and we fix it, period. I am Presbyterian, which means we have... We are a, a, a we, we go overboard on accountability and overlapping accountability for this reason, because I'm like, I, this, this could go poorly, okay? So, to answer your question, if we have the courage to forgive, might it lead to more vulnerability to said abuse? If we're doing it right, yes. That doesn't mean we have to accept that abuse happens, and it doesn't mean we don't work to change it. It means we don't burn the church down. We love it and edify it and build it up into the bride that Jesus sees it as. Okay, happy to talk more about that if you want. Let me answer one more question. Um, what do you think are examples of the quarantine zones in our current cultural moment where Christians could be climbing over walls to love people? <laughs> oh, yeah, good question. Um, You know what? I'm going to... I want to actually... Can I, have, can I not answer this question intentionally? Because... And I say this. I have no idea who, who this is. I have no idea why you're asking the question. But I want to like avoid even the remote chance of enabling us to create another place where we can fight for Jesus instead of rest in him. And I think we should be asking, this is a very good question, like do not hear what I'm not saying, okay? 
I'm saying before we answer this question, we need to ask, what is it we love too much to let go to do this? Because the answer to this question doesn't matter if we don't have the courage to face that first. And if we don't, if, if we don't realize we have nothing left to lose. Until we figure that out, this question, as good as it is, and as much as I want to answer it, is actually gets in the way of what I think our homework should be this week. Ask me again if this comes up, though. All right. <laughs> One of the amazing things about <laughs> communion is how rich it is in symbolism. I said earlier that Jesus...